Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Adult of Snack, a podcast that inspires and educates you on your additive manufacturing journey. I'm your host, Fabian Ahlefeld, and I lead the Additive Minds Consulting Team for EOS in North America. I'll be helping you achieve success in additive manufacturing by interviewing some of the brightest and most interesting experts in the whole industry. On today's episode, we'll be diving into the topic of post-processing, together with Felix Ewald. Felix is the CEO and co-founder of Dimension, the global leader in AM post-processing and finishing systems. And if you haven't thought about post-processing, Felix and I are here to change that. Many companies consider post-processing to be an afterthought, or they even ignore it altogether until it's too late. And that's a big mistake, because post-processing is such a vital part of any successful additive manufacturing initiative. Today, Felix is here to explain why. We'll talk about why post-processing is a big value driver for 3D printed products. We'll talk about the dreaded triangle of complexity. We'll even cover the many post-processing options that you should consider on your additive manufacturing journey. And most importantly, we'll discuss the best ways to approach your post-processing needs. Felix, welcome to Additive Snack. Uh, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Hello, Fabian. Thank, thank you very much for having me. I am also super excited. So, Felix, you're the co-founder and CEO of Dimension, which is the leading provider of post-processing equipment in the additive manufacturing industry. And you guys really have had a really great growth story behind you. You secured multiple funding rounds. Uh, you just opened up a new location in Austin, Texas, besides your Munich location. You even just released a completely new product line. Can you explain to us why your where your journey started uh, and uh, why and how post-processing adds such a tremendous value to final products. Yeah. Um, so actually, after our studies in uh, 2012, uh, we just wanted to found uh, a company. And our first idea was uh, to sell 3D printed smartphone cases. And in the beginning, the idea was to do it for um, yeah, end customers uh, so that everyone can design his own smartphone case. But we recognized quite soon that no one in the world wants to have his name on his smartphone case. And we also had a very, very bad crowdfunding campaign, so we failed hard. Um, uh, and then we switched to B2B and we, uh, we thought, okay, let's take the logos of the big companies and kind of make a 3D design out of it and sell it to to companies and uh, actually that uh, yeah that would yeah it, it went quite well so we also sold the first 200 smartphone cases to a bigger company but we had to take um, all the smartphone cases back after a few weeks because the color went off and uh, the the color of the smartphone cases um yeah kind of colored the pants of our customers and so that wasn't too funny, actually, and uh, we had to make, we, we just had to make a decision. I yeah? quit 3D printing because the technology is not there yet, or develop our own solution. Um, and uh, that's exactly what we did. So we went uh, into the basement and developed our own process for around six months. And after th after six months, we came back at least with a stable black color. So we thought, okay, then let's let let's sell black smartphone cases. And uh, yeah, then we met Arno. I think you know Arno. He Arno Held. He worked back then for EOS, and he told us that smartphone cases are maybe the most boring idea you can have uh, with 3D printing. 
but the quality that we achieve on the surfaces of the smartphone cases is superior and there is a huge need in the industry and uh, we really should think about becoming a tech company developing such uh, post-processing technologies and yeah that's what we did today we are a team of 90 uh, we developed way more machines not only a coloring machine we have more than 600 machines in field as i just mentioned we have a subsidiary in austin texas and so on so yeah we are quite happy that we listened to arno's advice back then yeah it's always good to to listen to some uh, advice from from outside your own company so can you give us a quick example on uh, an application, a product where post-processing really changes the game? Yeah. So, I mean, actually, maybe until today, there is no successful company on the market that sells 3D printed smartphone cases today. So still, I think it, it, it wasn't a good idea, right? But um, when we came up with our solution, of course, uh, different companies came to us. And the very first companies, um, yeah, actually, it was the eyewear industry. Uh, they wanted to produce high-quality eyewear frames. And I think, uh, yeah, or, or glasses, yeah, how, how you want to name it. But, um, I mean, eyewear frames, in my opinion, is a great example that shows the value of post-processing. Um, and in my opinion, um, yeah, the post-processing is really the difference between a raw part and a final product. So, actually, with um, with powder bed printers, you can produce such frames since since around 30 years, right? Since the very beginning. but because of the surface quality, you cannot use them as a final product. And um, yeah, I mean, when you just print such a frame, um, you can use it as a prototype, right? The value is the, the, the cost of the produced part. So maybe the value is 10 euros of uh, such a prototype. But uh, with our technologies, um, our customers can sell those frames today for more than 300 euros to end, cu to end customers. And I think this exactly shows the value creation um, that is possible through post-processing. Um, and so we really enabled uh, the whole industry to do that. And today, at least in, yeah, in Europe, if you go to an independent optician, you will find a 3D printed eyewear frame in each store. So that's yeah, a very cool application. And in my opinion, has, yeah, it really shows uh, um, the value that post-processing can bring to the game. Yeah, huge impact on, on one industry just by adding this huge value-added piece. Now, we, we've known each other for a while, and uh, you oftentimes talk about the triangle of complexity, where um, from your perspective, this triangle of complexity is a key step to really developing a successful final product. Can you explain what the triangle of complexity entails? Yeah, so um, for me, 3D printing consists always out of three things, right? A very high level and a general view. So it's always design, print, and finish. And material, of course, is very strong related to print. So design, print plus material, and finish. That's for me the triangle. And uh, at least if you talk about serial manufacturing with additive, you, you really, you, you always need all three steps to come to the best possible outcome with additive. Um, and uh, every part of the triangle can create a lot of value if you do it in the right way, but it also can create a lot of problems if you don't consider all aspects um, in the very beginning. And so for me, if I talk to customers, I always tell them, hey guys, if you really want to get the most out of 3D printing, you always should consider um, all three aspects. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So let's let's actually dive deeper into one of these sectors of the triangle, and that is the the, the post processing 
technologies that are out there. Um, and I would like to understand a little bit uh, more the fundamental technologies behind that. Could you give us an overview of all technologies out there and uh, how they work? Yeah, so, so, so I mean, in, in general, with post-processing, I mean, making end-use products out of printed parts, that's for me the, 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 the high-level view on it. And I mean, today there is no 3D printing technology on the market where, where you don't need post-processing. Um, of course, the workflow um, looks different from printing technology to printing technology, but you always need post-processing. In my opinion, that's a fact. Some companies say that you don't need it, but I think, uh, yeah, each technology needs kind of post-processing. And we, as I mentioned, we are working on uh, post-processing technology for powder bed parts. So I would like to focus on that for now, because otherwise it would take too long eh, if we consider all different printing technologies out there. So on the powder bed side, the first thing you have to know is that the outcome of a powder bed printer is not a part. Actually, it's a powder cake with many different parts inside. And so the very first step you always have to do is you need to do yeah, kind of unpack the, the powder cake. And um, the outcome of that, of that step is um, yeah, single parts with still some powder on it. And I mean, in the, in, the, in the last 30 years, everyone did this step in a manual way. And right now, some solutions are coming to the market to automate it. And uh, also, we, as I mentioned, are working on some things to automate it in a very smart way. So in the first step, it's really about the automation to bring down costs for the unpacking. So unpacking doesn't really create value. It's just the thing you have to do. Yeah, and th then we come to depowdering, and uh, there you need to get rid of the residual powder at the surface um, that still yeah, is there from the printing process. And uh, you, you do this through a blasting process with compressed air on different medias. And that's also a step that you had to do manually until we came um, up with uh, an automated, automated solution four years ago. In the meantime, there are um, also some other um, options on the market, but actually... Um, yeah, for a very long time, you had to do it in a manual way. And actually, depowdering is a way more complex process than many people think. Um, so, so maybe a question to you. What, what do you think? Uh, how long does it take to depowder an eyewear frame in a proper way if you, if you do it manually? So, I, I mean, uh, an eyewear frame consists of one front and two temples, right? It's three, three parts. What do you think? How, how long does it take? I would... If I envision myself depowdering an eyewear frame right now, I would guess it would take me two minutes per frame. Yeah, no, not too bad. So it, it takes around 90 seconds. Um, All right. So, slow. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, it's also not a too funny job, right? If, if, if your task for the day is to depowder 1,000 eyewear frames. Um, but actually, yeah, exactly. um, so if you do it in an automated way, yeah, 100 frames take around, um, I don't know, if you do it manually, yeah, 100 frames would take around 150 minutes. And with an automated machine, you can do it in 10 minutes. So really huge potential for bringing down costs just through automation. But um, with depowdering, it's not only about um, automation, yeah, because you can only you can also do a lot of things wrong if you do it manually. And since a perfect a depowdered part is the basis for all further post-processing steps, you really need to make sure that you treat it very gently and also in a reproducible way. And that's not possible if you do it manually. And I, I could tell quite a few more things about depowdering um, right now, but I think it, it's okay for now. Yeah, um, so. But yeah, it's absolutely necessary step. Yeah, then um, uh, surface finishing options. So there are there are two major 
there are two ma major mechanical ways how you can do it and one chemical approach to it. Um, so to start with the mechanical one, so um, a standard technology is vibratory tumbling. Yeah? You know this maybe from, di from different other industries. And there you have a huge tumbling machine that vibrates with some grinding media in it that kind of smooths the surface through those vibrations. And actually, this is used for eyewear frames today, yeah? for 3D printed eyewear frames. And for that, it's okay. Because you always have the kind of same geometry, and it's also it's a comparable easy geometry. So you can adjust the process to the specific application, and it makes sense for some applications. But in my opinion, it doesn't really make sense to use vibratory tumbling and additive as a core technology for surface finishing because it's very limited in terms of designs that you can treat. Yeah. Um, so if you have a more complex design than an eyewear frame, um, yeah, it won't work out. So. We, as I mentioned, decided not to work on such a technology, but we've came up with a process that is called, or in other industry, you call it shot peening or shot blasting. Um, we call it our poly shot process. And once again, it's a blasting process, but there we use big rounded plastic beads and compressed air to shoot those beads with high speed on the surface um, of the parts. And uh, with that, we achieve very homogeneous and nice looking semi-glossy surfaces that uh, really create a high quality look and feel on the parts. And since it's an automated machine again, where parts are tumbling, we achieve homogeneous surface wherever those beads hit the parts. And that's actually on all visible surfaces. So a very economical and reproducible process. But with all mechanical options, you always have two challenges. So the first option is you cannot really treat complex inner channels. And the second uh, challenge is you cannot treat flexible materials. Yeah, because you, you cannot bring the energy into the, into the surface of the parts because they are flexible. And um, that's where you can use chemical smoothing. And um, yeah, actually there we use a, um, a vapor of a solvent to dissolve the top layer of the part. And with that, you can get completely smooth surfaces like you know it from injection molding. People know this technique um, from smoothing FDM parts with acetone or stuff like that. But if you try to do this with high-performance polymers like poly um, like polyamide, uh, you need to do it differently. And the option one is to use way more aggressive chemicals, which we think you, you shouldn't do, and also you cannot do it as an industrial company. Or option two is to build a complex and expensive hardware infrastructure in order to use less aggressive chemicals and achieve the best possible results in terms of geometry, independency, and reproducibility. And yeah, these are the three options. And maybe the, the only disadvantage with chemical smoothing is that you need to hang the parts um, when before they come into the, in, into the machine because otherwise they would glue together. And also the machine is quite expensive compared to mechanical options. Um, not so much when you compare cost per part, but the, the purchase is quite expensive. And the, the last step would be coloring if we still have time to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Let's talk about coloring. Yeah, that's why you guys started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Actually, we started with coloring and then we went back to the, to the other um, process steps. But I mean, we, we, in many cases or actually in almost every consumer application, you need color. And there are three different ways how to do that. You can uh, you use already colored material for, um, from the colored material from the printing process. That's kind of easy possible with FDM and SLA. With powder bed, it's very hard, in, if not impossible, yeah, because of different technical reasons. So it's not so easy to get 
colored material already. The second option is you do spray painting, which is very time consuming and also very hard to apply with many geometries. And the third option um, is, yeah, you dip parts in colored water with dyes that you, for example, know from the textile industry. And that's what we do as they mentioned. And actually that's what the whole industry is doing in, in, in many cases today. Yeah? So many just use cooking pots and dyes from the supermarket, but we do it more in an industrial way. And uh, this process leads to many advantages. So first of all, it's geometry independent because it's a dipping process. It's kind of easy to automate. And uh, if you do it in an industrial way, you can achieve almost any color in a reproducible way with great properties that fit different needs in the different industries. Yeah? For example, we have specific solutions for the automotive industry, for the consumer industry, and for the food industry. And we are constantly working on further improvements um, of our coloring process. So actually, yeah, with all those different steps, you can develop application-specific post-processing workflows to exactly match the requirements in the different industries. And yeah, that's what we are doing since uh, five years. Yeah, uh, and I think what you just mentioned also shows why you call it the triangle of complexity. Right. There is uh, multiple additive manufacturing technologies. There is now a, a broad range of different uh, post-processing technologies as well. And then the influence of material and design, uh, which really makes it difficult for especially engineers who are just entering additive manufacturing to get a grasp on and to develop an application that actually has a higher success rate in the beginning. Now, Felix, if, if I imagine myself being a... Um, a developer in an R&D organization. Um, and uh, I'm now uh, looking at uh, developing and defining my first additive manufacturing application, a part that we want to push into production and that we want to sell to end customers. How do I approach this triangle of complexity? How do I make sure that the decisions I take in the beginning ensure a, a high quality and, as you said, also reproducible? Yeah. Um... Yeah, you're right. So it, 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 it's not so easy. But first of all, un understanding the complexity so that printing can influence post-processing. Post-processing can influence the printing process. The same goes for the material and design of the part. If, if you understand this complexity, you are, you're already on a good track, right? So understanding the problem that you are facing all, um, always helps. And um it's really about the whole value chain until you have a final product. So you really have to look um, at all those aspects. Um, and yeah, how would I start? Yeah, maybe I would look at our website and the applications we show there to see what's possible. But uh, yeah, just kidding. Yeah, that's not an industrial approach. Um, but uh, yeah, actually, I would I would look at different samples that are post-processed and understand how the different technologies work together and how they fit to my desired applications. And if there are already working examples out there, other applications that really, really helps yeah, to understand what's possible and where the limitations are. And I, I, I would also look for the right partners yeah, that exactly understand this complexity. Um, because many co companies, I mean, already solved a lot of things through strong partnerships. And so I would look exactly for those partnerships that understand the triangle and uh, already have experience and track record in solving all those different challenges. Yeah, Because additive is so complex, you, you, you cannot solve everything 
just by yourself, right? You always need um, the different stakeholders, the different parties that are involved in, in, in the projects. And in the very best case, you find partners that already have set up specific and defined production lines uh, for, your, uh, for your application. I mean, unfortunately, that's still difficult to find today, but um, there are many projects going on right now um, Yeah, where it's really about concrete applications, specific workflows for concrete applications. And I think that makes it way easier and it will also help to drive and yeah, to drive adoption and also make it easier to adopt to adopt additive um, within your company. Very good insights, Felix. Um, and I think there's many people out there who are asking themselves exactly these questions. How do I start? And as we just discussed, additive manufacturing by itself is already complex. Now we're adding a second layer. Felix, thank you so much for joining us on Additive Snack. It was a pleasure to have you on here. And uh, also thank you for sharing all of these insights and information. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, it was a pleasure. And I yeah, hope uh, to see you soon in person. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe uh, starting in July, we can travel again. Yeah, I hope so. So as you just heard, Post-processing is more than just the final finishing of a part. It needs to be thought of in the early stages of product development and can add significant value to your application, if done right, of course. As always, I'd love to hear from you. What are your parts where post-processing was a key success factor? Or do you have any questions Felix and I could answer? If so, please feel free to find me on social media and Felix and I would be happy to answer any of your questions. Or shoot us an email at additive.snack at eos-na.com. Next time on Additive Snack, we're actually running a special episode together with the 3D Friday talk show from America Makes, 3 Your Mind, and the 3D Printing Industry Magazine. We'll talk about how to find your first additive manufacturing part. And we'll talk about what to do next. We'll have some amazing guests. We'll talk to Stephanie Brickwede, the head of additive manufacturing at Deutsche Bahn. And she's also the managing director of Mobility Goes Additive. We'll talk to John Wilsinski, the executive director of America Makes. And we'll talk to Florian Lassan, the senior business development manager at 3Omind. Until then, thank you very much for listening to today's episode. Please join us next time for another great episode of Additive Snack. For this episode, a special thanks goes out to my co-producers, Kristen Eiseminger and Tim Moynihan, as well to Shannon Bauch for graphic design and social media management.